if you are able, please remain standing. And our scripture reading for this morning is found in Judges 3, verses 12 through 31. Judges 3, we'll begin at chapter 12, Judges 3, 12, through the end of the chapter. Judges 3, 12. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look, and to, do their, and to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he is probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So they waited till they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed, and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. Then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Thus ends the reading of our word. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Again, our Father and our God, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. I ask that my words would not be a distraction, and that your word would not return void. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to consider two distinct points from this portion of Judges 3. First, to reflect 
upon our own need for a Savior. God raised up Jesus Christ as our Savior from the effects of our sin and rebellion. Additionally, when God equips his people for service, he readily uses our handicaps, our giftedness, and whatever resources we have available. Furthermore, this text, this text compels us to translate our courage into action because of our faith in Yahweh. In this passage, we will see one of the sin cycles of the Israelites during the period of the judges. Their state of sin, followed by God's hand of discipline, wherein the people feel the effects of their sin and its consequences, followed by their humility and repentance before God, and then ultimately God's positive response to send them a savior, a deliverer. We must be cautioned, however, from believing that we are any different today in our own need for a savior. Additionally, in this pericope, we will see the character and actions of two men whom God raised up to be a temporary and a type of savior for his people. I have only two main points this morning. First, man's need for a savior. And second, God's equipping of his servants, of which we will consider some applications for both in turn. First, man's need for a savior from verses 12 and 15. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. In the, the, in the Israelites' cycle of sin, we first observe the Israelites' sin against God. One of the themes of Judges comes from the repeated phrase throughout the book of Judges, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is exemplified in this text as well. There was no moral political leader to unify the nation, so they behaved tribally and they failed to even rally behind the faith in their one true God, Yahweh. They were slaves to their own devices and prone to idolatry like the surrounding tribes and nations. The behavior of the Israelites led to the cyclical pattern of sin, discipline, and reconciliation. It's difficult to tell in many cases whether their pleas for deliverance were indeed prayers of repentance or merely prayers for relief. At least in this text, the author signifies that they are at least calling out to Yahweh. There is no relief to be found in the dead hands and unseeing eyes of the idols carved from stone and from wood. In humility, they return to Yahweh and pray for a deliverer for their Savior. The text then turns to the second part of the cycle. God disciplines his people. The Old Testament consistently demonstrates that God would discipline and shepherd his people when they sin both intentionally and unwittingly. This is the same case here. God would not leave his people to wallow in their sins, so he would bring them to task. In this case, he raised up the Moabites, with whom the Israelites had continuous drama. The Moabites came from the descendants of Lot, so they were kin, but the Israelites were ill-treated by them consistently. Not only... Did the Moabites not allow the Israelites to pass through en route from Egypt to Canaan? But the king of Moab also hired Balaam to curse the nation as they were passing by. 
However, just as God would restrict the Israelites from conquering the Moabites and that land of Moab, he also prevented Balaam from cursing the Israelites. Rather, every time Balaam opened his mouth, he could only bless God's people. You might also remember the Moabites in history from the book of Ruth, who was a Moabitess and a matriarch to King David. As memory serves, she was his great-grandmother. And therefore, David would also later take his parents to Moab for protection while he was fleeing from Saul. Third, we see that the people suffered the consequences of their sins in verse 14. Because of God's hand of discipline, the people would soon discover the weight and consequences of their sin. Being defeated by the Moabite alliance, the people of Israel were compelled to pay an annual tribute to the king of Moab, who set up a palace in the city of Palms, which is likely the old city of Jericho. The servitude and payments of their tribute must have been harsh enough to eventually compel the people to turn to God for their relief. Fourth, the people were drawn to repentance and humility before God. After 18 years, they finally cried out to the living God, Yahweh. Again, the text is unclear to what extent their repentance took shape, but they at least directed their prayers to Yahweh. There were likely all forms of immorality that had been corrupting the people of Israel. However, it seems evident from the surrounding context that idolatry was likely the primary problem. Not only do the previous reports of the judges speak to sins of idolatry, but the stone images referenced in verse 26 were also likely stones of idol worship. Turning to Yahweh in place of idolatry was enough for Yahweh to hear and act on behalf of his people. Despite their cycles of sin, it seems that they at least sought temporary repentance when the things were at their worst. And so finally, God responded and raised up a savior. The text tells us that Yahweh heard their pleas indicated by his response to raise up a deliverer for them at the beginning of verse 15. If one were to read through the book of Exodus and into Judges, one might be quick to consider that these folks never seemed to learn their lesson. They continually doubted God and turned to idols, immorality, complaining, and other acts of unfaithfulness. And God would continually provide them with righteous leaders, and they would rebel against them as well. The problem is that somehow we believe we are different. We think that we would have acted differently then, or that somehow we are acting differently now. And I would argue that we are no different. If you are in this room today and you have never turned to Jesus Christ in faith for repentance and reconciliation, then you are still at enmity with God. You are an enemy of God in rebellion against him. But there are believers in the room as well, and even we as Christians aren't um, quickly to follow in obedience um, all, all the time. Aren't we also prone to idolatry by replacing the one true God more often than not with the idol of our own self, our own personal satisfaction, a life of ease? We think to ourselves, shouldn't others strive to make us happy, to serve us? So I would argue that we are no different. We are all sinners in rebellion against God. Though this concept is rife throughout Scripture, 
Paul summarizes it twice in Romans 3. And Paul uses these two references as a call to repentance. Even those in the, in the congregation of Israel who were um, called to faith in Christ. So first Romans 3, 9, he asks, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And he continues in verse 22, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our original state, all of us are sinners. All of us are in need of repentance and reconciliation to God. We too require a Savior. Christ is that Savior. In Romans 5, 8, Paul declares, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul expounds further in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. And you he made alive who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with grace. By grace you have been saved. God reached out to us in grace while we were still sinners in rebellion against him, and he sent us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, when we sin, if we are followers of Christ, we justly face the disciplining hand of God. Deuteronomy 8.5, Moses reminds us, You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Furthermore, the author of Proverbs 3 writes, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 took that quote and, and, and ran with it. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? However, here's the warning. But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Even as believers, when we sin, which we will do, we are called to repentance And whether confronted in our sin by the Holy Spirit or another man, the purpose is always to draw us to repentance. Luke records the sermon of Peter in Acts 3.19, and he's preaching to unbelievers, but he says here, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And this call to repentance is both for the currently unconverted, but also a call to repentance for us as well. In Matthew 18, 15, Jesus tells us that the intent of our confronting sin in a brother or sister directly and church discipline in general is to the end of repentance and reconciliation. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. John also reminds the church that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to see that we are no different than the fallen humanity described throughout Scripture and the Israelites of Judges 3 in particular. But these passages are also here to encourage us to action and to faithfulness. And this leads us to our second main point and our primary study for this passage, God's equipping of his servants. And our first application is that God desires your weaknesses for his purposes. Verse 15, but when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for, for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length and fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. In the opening verses of this pericope, we are introduced to the antagonist, King Eglon. In order to discipline the children of Israel for their idolatry and immorality, Yahweh strengthened their enemy to be a scourge against them. Because of Moab's victory over the Israelites, they were forced to pay an annual tribute for 18 years, and we don't know to what extent uh, their servitude was an affliction. Even though Eglon led the Moabites to a victory over Israel, resulting in their subjugation, he will only play the fool in this text. The author will take every advantage to deride his enemy by emphasizing every symbolism that the story can afford, and there is much. What is lost on us in English that the original audience would have appreciated up front was the play on the name of Eglon itself. Eglon is the diminutive form of the Hebrew word agel, meaning bull or calf. If calflet were a word, that would be kind of the, the, the mentality, little bull, little calf, baby calf. Furthermore, the name would also have an association with a similar sounding word, agol, meaning round or rotund. So the Israelites likely pictured King Eglon as a rotund little calf, His name would also foreshadow his demise as a fattened, slaughtered bull by the end of the story. In verse 15, we see that when the people repented, Yahweh raised up a savior. In our text, Ehud is identified by his tribe, which is a common moniker, but also by his trait of being left-handed. This attribute foreshadows a key point to be revealed in the story, but it too is full of irony. As we shall see, God raised up an imperfect judge for a perfect mission. In one of Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoons, Linus is chomping on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. He notices hands and exclaims, Hands are fascinating things. I like my hands. I think I have nice hands. My hands seem to have a lot of character. Lucy now comes on the scene as Linus continues. These are hands which may someday do marvelous works. They may build mighty bridges or heal the sick or hit home runs or write soul-stirring novels. In his crescendo, Linus exclaims in Lucy's face, These are hands which may someday change the course of destiny. Lucy looks down at them and matter-of-factly observes, They've got jelly on them. Ehud did not have jelly on his hands. But as a left-handed man, the Israelites would, view, would have viewed his left-handedness as a handicap. 
The Hebrew records it as literally impeded or bound or restricted of his right hand. The irony is further palpable since he is described as a Benjamite, which is literally translated son of the right hand. Essentially, Yahweh has selected from the sons of the right hand a handicapped man, pun intended, because his right hand did not function as his dominant hand, which would have been the expected norm. But common is as common does, and it seems that the norm in Israel was a lot of idolatry. And so the author demonstrates that God raised up an uncommon man for a well-suited, uncommon mission. Because of Ehud's handicap, he was strong and capable in his life hand, in his left hand, which made him a threat. Am I right, Adam? Oh, yeah. How many lefties do we have in the... Oh, man, we are a fierce congregation. (laughs) Well, Ehud crafted for himself a dagger, which was about 15 inches long, that he was able to strap to his right leg. Guards would never search a man on his right leg because all men carried their sword on their left hip. The irony digs even deeper, however, in Hebrew. What we read in English as a double-edged dagger can be translated literally as a two-mouthed sword. In Semitic idioms, not only are swords described as having mouths, they are also described as eating their prey. The target for this sword was a man so fat that the picture is painted that he must have had two mouths to get that big. Thus, this small sword will make short work of this large-mouthed eater. The Old Testament narratives are rich in this type of word usage, symbolism, and idioms. And as the passage describes, Ehud is about to make a left-handed tribute indeed. Throughout Scripture, God demonstrates that he prefers to use the weaknesses of mankind to fulfill his purposes. The New Testament outrightly states in 1 Corinthians 1.27... But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. One of the other immediate examples I thought of was Moses as well. He was certainly well prepared by God to understand the workings of the palace, and he likewise had 40 years of training in shepherding in the wilderness. However, at the burning bush, we are clued into Moses' weakness that caused him anxiety namely public speaking. By now, Moses was essentially a recluse, tending his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. In Exodus 3.11, he claimed, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then in chapter 4, verse 10, he claimed, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Moses appealed, Not only am I a nobody, I can't even speak well. But God told him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? The lesson is that Yahweh will equip his servants for the purpose for which he calls them. Believer, when God calls you to service, consider the opportunity, not your weakness. As Paul recorded the words of God in 2 Corinthians 12:9, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." To which Paul responds, "Therefore, most gladly, 
I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, I would not want someone to say that I had not done my due diligence in biblical exegesis. I do not personally believe that the context implicates this additional interpretation, but it is possible that the term left-handed, translated as impeded of his right hand, could be interpreted as a man who purposefully bound or restricted the use of his right hand to become ambidextrous in both hands or to become specifically skilled in his left hand. Now, the basis for this interpretation is from Judges 20, verse 15, which speaks about 700 select men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair's breadth and not miss. The context of chapter 20, however, is specifically preparing trained warriors for battle, and the adjective select likewise indicates a level of experience and testing that they had undergone to become this skilled. Because of some of these other factors, it could be inferred that these men purposefully bound their right hands to excel as left-handed slingers. Technically, however, neither case eliminates the possibility that all of these men were naturally left-handed, Ehud of Judges 3 or the Benjamites of Judges 20. That being said, Scripture likewise demonstrates that God does prepare his servants for their service even if he likewise uses their weaknesses. I mentioned Moses already for having both the royal and the wilderness training that would prepare him for his task, and God used his training and his weakness. Further, Moses' successor Joshua was especially well-equipped to replace Moses because Joshua shadowed Moses for 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua was noted as having scaled Mount Sinai on several occasions with Moses, and spent extended personal time in the presence of Yahweh in the tent of meeting when Moses would leave to deal with the people. Believer, this should spur you to consider your special giftedness and training to best serve the church. The New Testament demonstrates in several passages that we are all different members in the one body of Christ, with special giftedness to act as the hands, fingers, Feet, ears, eyes, mind, etc., all fulfilling our critical functions for the equipping of the whole body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31 is a key text. Verses 18 through 20 specifically state, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. Consider your giftedness and apply it to service. We have considered both Ehud's weakness and giftedness to serve this special purpose. Likewise, he prepared by further equipping himself with the tools necessary for this mission. But none of this would be of any value if he did not have the faith in Yahweh and the courage to act according to his calling. And here's our second application. God desires your courage for his purpose. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He, the king, said, keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he, the king, rose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. 
Even the hilt went in after the blade. The setting of Ehud's mission was the presentation of the annual tribute to King Eglon. At any point, Ehud could have abandoned his cause. Rather, he presented the tribute and escorted the assistants back to safety before returning for his secret mission with the king. Upon his return, he told the foolish king that he had a secret message for him. In pride, the imprudent king would call for silence and dismiss the whole court, including his bodyguards. To further set up Eglon for his downfall and prepare him as a target, Ehud told the king that indeed this message was from God, evoking the positive response of the king. Herein lies some further irony. First, Ehud used the common term to refer to deity, which is Elohim, which could be rightly translated as a title for the one true God, Yahweh, or the plural form for deities in general, which would be gods with the lowercase g. Eglon was not a follower of Yahweh, so it was appropriate that Ehud used a purposefully ambiguous term to elicit a positive response, to which Eglon rose to his feet to receive this special message. Additionally, the word translated message is one in Hebrew that has a broad scope of meaning, which includes both word or message, but also thing or object. In its full expression, Ehud ambiguously advised Eglon that he had a special thing or a secret thing from Yahweh for him, to wit, a hidden sword strapped to his right thigh. Without further haste, Ehud courageously drew his sword, charged the fat, defenseless king, and plunged the sword deep into the obese man's belly. Because of the swiftness of the blow and the girth of the king, his fat belly quickly swallowed up the two-mouthed sword, which intended to eat the king as its prey. The following phrase from Hebrew completes the action. Literally, it went out the back. The translation could infer that the sword was so far plunged into its target that it exited out the back. And the Lexham English Bible chose this interpretation. However, considering the heft of the king and the shortness of the sword, though it is possible this is an unlikely interpretation, in my opinion. The option that nearly all other English versions prefer is to interpret it euphemistically. Here in the New King James, the translators assumed his entrails poured out. Although possible, this seems contrary to the picture described in Hebrew as coming out the back. The ESV rather infers that the king had an uncontrollable bowel movement. This seems consistent in the context based on the reaction and assumptions of the king's attendants when they came back and discovered the door locked. In the meantime, Ehud made a swift and stealthy exit. His courage is further demonstrated in his action to rally the troops of Israel and lead them in combat against the confused Moabites. God used the courage of Ehud to slay the king and defeat the Moabite forces to bring about a complete victory for the Israelites over their oppressors. Ehud would be the savior of Israel that day, bringing peace to the nation for 80 years. Although Ehud is a type of savior who would bring a temporary victory and rest to his people, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment to bring perfect peace and victory to the people of God. Believer, God has given you a perfect savior, but God also wants to employ the courage of his people to fulfill the works that he has prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. 
It takes great courage to share the gospel in this dark world, to call out sin and urge others to repentance. But this is the mission to which we are called, to preach the gospel and to make disciples. It will likewise take courage to stand for Christ and to suffer for him, as Jesus, Paul, and Peter, and others would warn us throughout the New Testament. Finally, in the last verse of our passage this morning, we are encouraged to see that God desires your willingness for his purposes. Verse 31, after Ehud was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. We know little about Shamgar, but we can assert that he willingly stood up on account of God's mission. Whereas Ehud was confronting the Moabites in the eastern half of Israel, generally speaking, the threat of the Philistines was from the west from the, towards the Mediterranean Sea. The Philistines were known to be sea people. From the text, we may also infer that Shamgar was likely a farmer because of his tool of choice. His weapon was what he had readily available and what he was used to handling. An ox goad is as it sounds. It was a farming implement used to goad or to prod and direct the large ox wherever you wanted him to goad. Wherever you would want him to go. The, the ox goad would have been a long staff, likely about eight feet long, of a hardwood with an iron tip. And most images of an, the ancient ox goad had both the iron spike at the tip for poking or pushing. It also had a curved hook as well, just below it, that could be used for hooking or pulling, perhaps on a horn or a hoof, a strap that might have been attached to the animal or even the yoke. Shamgar was resigned to using what he had available. The Song of Deborah in Judges 5 is the only other place that mentions Shamgar in the Bible. In Judges 5.8, the song states that there was not even one shield or spear among 40,000 men in Israel. Hundreds of years later, Jonathan and his armor bearer faced similar odds when they went against the Philistines in 1 Samuel 13 and 14. And the text in 1 Samuel 13 tells us, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. The reader is told then in 1 Samuel 14, 14, that Jonathan and his armor bearer killed 20 men on a half acre of land with just one sword and spear between the two of them. We know that Shamgar had faith in Yahweh because God raised him up to, to defend and deliver his people. Furthermore, we know that he was courageous, as was Ehud, to face insurmountable odds to win God's victory. Shamgar was also a tenacious warrior, for no matter how one calculates the math, for one man to kill 600 takes strength and endurance. The accolades of David's mighty men in 2 Samuel 23 demonstrate that victory against great odds was not out of the question, even if it was still uncommon. The chief of David's mighty men was renowned as the text tells us in 2 Samuel 23, 8, because he had killed 800 men at one time. 
Another of his mighty men, essentially ranked in the top four, was renowned for defeating 300 men with his spear. But even if Shamgar were to only have killed one man at a time, what would be considered a reasonable amount of time? One day? One a day for 600 days? That does not sound like a simple prospect either. The text, of course, gives no details regarding the circumstances and timing, though I am led to believe, based on the context and the accounts of 2 Samuel, it was likely a one-time victory that Shamgar won on behalf of his people. It can be supposed that Shamgar defeated the local garrison, which brought his people a reprieve from Philistine oppression. Believer, just as God desires to use your weaknesses and your courage, he desires your willingness to obey with action. Take whatever resources you have readily available and serve Yahweh. Take account of your weaknesses and your training. Muster your courage of faith in Yahweh and meet the task head on. Again, we are all members of the body of Christ and we each have a role to play. Serve where where you feel gifted, but serve. Consider as well the resources we have available from our responsive reading this morning. We have the ability to respond the ability and the responsibility to daily put on the armor of God. And as Paul concludes, pray for one another with all prayer and supplication. If you can do nothing else, you can always pray. We observe the cycle of Israel's sin from the opening verses, its effect, God's response, and their repentance. The Israelites sinned against God. God disciplined his people. The people suffered the consequences of their sin. The people were drawn to repentance and humility before God. And God raised up a Savior. We are no different. We are all in need of a Savior. We were all sinners in rebellion against God at one time. And as his children, we justly faced the disciplining hand of God. And when we still sin, we are also called to repentance. Furthermore, we, ha- we learned from this illustration that God raises up and enables his servants. In doing so, As it was for them, it is a call to arms for us. God desires your weaknesses for his purposes. God desires your courage for his purposes. And God desires your willingness for his purposes. If you are currently in a cycle of unrepentant sin, I pray that today you would humbly seek repentance from God and turn from your sins. If you have never bowed the knee to Jesus, I pray that you would do so today. Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior that God raised up to deliver us from the slavery of our sin and the righteous wrath and judgment of God because of our sin. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Finally, take courage, my brothers and sisters, that God desires to use you to serve as a member in the body of Christ, in the spread of the gospel and in the nurture and admonition of the saints. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would enable us and strengthen us Give us courage to use our weaknesses and our giftedness for you. We ask that we would follow hard after you and that we would seek to serve well as members um, in your body. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.